Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. Actually, we're going to look at some segments of chapter 9 and 10 today. And here's the key concept for this morning. Beware of moldy bread decisions. I'll explain what I mean by that, but I think you catch on already. It's not good. A moldy bread decision. Joshua chapter 9. And as we find Joshua 9 in our Bibles, I want to ask you a question today. The question is, could you tell the difference between a zebra and a donkey painted black and white? Most of you say yes. I could tell the difference between a zebra and a donkey painted black and white. What about at a distance? If there was a distance, could you tell the difference? Or if it was behind an enclosure in a zoo, could you tell the difference? Now, this is not a random question. In 2013, CBS News reported that the Cairo Zoo in Cairo, Egypt, was accused of having a donkey painted black and white in the zebra pen. A a veterinarian saw the difference, but it took a while for people to figure that out. And here's the point. The ability to properly identify things is important in the passage we'll look at today. The ability to properly identify things. I want to show you for a moment, before we get to the the actual passage, the strategy that was employed by Joshua in the land. Do we have the map? The slide? Okay, it's going to be in the middle. All right. This is the the strategy that Joshua used as he entered the land of Egypt, uh, Egypt, uh, Israel, uh, with his armies conquering. Then it was called Canaan. You see the blue line in the middle? Initially, what Joshua did was he wanted to divide the nation in two. He pushed his armies from east to west in a way to divide the nation so that the city-states of the north and the south could not unite together and come against him in insurmountable numbers. So that blue line is what we're following today in in Joshua chapter 9 and 10. He had to conquer the cities of Jericho, Ai, Bethel, Gibeon, Jerusalem, and those is just to name a few of the larger cities uh, to conquer this uh, center section. He, he understood that if he could give his armies a foothold there in the middle, then he had a chance then to go south and then north to gain the land. From a human point of view, it was a reasonable strategy. After conquest of the middle portion, he'd be able to keep his armies moving. But strategy is only as good as its execution. 
And in chapter 9, we see some problems of execution. But let's chap- uh, catch up to where we are. We skipped over chapter 8. I want to summarize the events of chapter 8 before we go into chapter 9. Because in chapter 8, the children of Israel are obeying a direct command from Moses, given in, in Deuteronomy 27. Moses said this, when you get into the land and you have an opportunity, what I want you to do is go to Mount Ebal and create an a, a, a altar there, and on the altar write the words of the law. And after you have done that, I want you to separate the children of Israel into two groups, six tribes on the base of Mount Ebal, and then six more tribes on the base of Mount Gerizim, separated by a small valley. And there I want you to call back and forth and recite the curses and the blessings of the law of God. All of this was scripted out for the children of Israel before they got into the land. And in chapter 8, Joshua obeys the instructions of Moses. He goes to that place and they perform that ceremony. That ceremony was meant to remind them of how dependent they are on their God. It's meant to remind them how faithful God has been for them. And so as we enter chapter 9... The covenant has been restated. The crisis of Achan's sin is past. Jericho has has been defeated. Ai has been defeated. And you get the sense that the Israelites have the wind at their back. There is a momentum now among the people to go and do that march through the middle of the middle of the land. As we come to chapter 9, then something happens among the Canaanites that has never happened before. Let's read together. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire sea coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. That's what's never happened before. These city-states lived in a constant state of rivalry, but those rivalries were set aside when they became desperate with fear facing the Israelite armies. All of a sudden, there is a coalition of these city-states hoping that they can defeat the the marching armies of Israel. But one city in that center section, did not join the coalition. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They they went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Gibeon resorts to deception. They pretend that they're from a faraway land so that Joshua will make a treaty of peace with them. The reputation of Israel has preceded them. We've already seen this in Rahab and Jericho and now in the coalition cities. They are particularly aware that the marching orders for Joshua are to destroy all the city-states in the land 
God is preserving and protecting his people, this nation that will be the incubator for the savior of the world. And so the Gibeonites resort to deception. Later in this episode, they explain why they did so. Verse 24 of the same chapter. They're talking to Joshua. The Gibeonites say, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. In other words, the Gibeonites were convinced that the one true God was going to keep his word. The Israelites were going to be successful no matter how many Canaanite cities joined together. And the Gibeonites decided for their own preservation to pretend to be a distant people. Now, it must have been very flattering for Joshua to hear that this distant people have heard about us. We're famous. The news of our ability is going far and wide. Wherever these people are from, even there, they've heard about what we can do. And with this flattery In his hearing, Joshua makes a terrible decision. Verse 14, the men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. See, the Gibeonites have planned elaborately for this trick. In their conversation, they named the long-ago battles. We have heard what God did for you as you escaped Egypt. In the other battles, they're, they're careful not to mention Jericho. They're careful not to mention Ai. The Gibeonites bring props. They bring worn-out shoes and old clothes and moldy bread. Look, we've been on the road forever to get here just to make sure we can have peace with you. And all those things, even though it seemed that They were what they said they were. Promised land living requires the ability to properly identify things. And things were not as clear as they seemed. Joshua was deceived. The Gibeonites lived 20 miles down the road, not in a faraway land. And he was deceived, number one, because of what he did not do. Joshua does not pray. He doesn't inquire of the Lord. And Joshua is hoodwinked as he gives in to disguise and flattery. And I want you to remember those two words, disguise and flattery, because they are still the weapons that Satan uses against the people of God. They are still the wedge that Satan uses to get us to make moldy bread decisions, bad choices that are not what God would want, that which is evil if rightly identified, would carry a whiff of the fumes of hell, but it is disguised to be fashionable and fun, exciting and liberating and new, and certainly you want to live the liberated new life, right? That which is sinful is dressed up to be something enlightened and progressive. All the people who are in the know, this is what they do, and you want to be enlightened, don't you? And based on disguise and flattery, without directly appealing to the Heavenly Father, a moldy bread decision is made. This bread is so moldy. What they say must be true because Joshua is only living by sight. 
And the faith-filled prayer that's necessary never takes place. But it's not very long until it's clear that they have made a mistake. And when the children of Israel learn that they have been tricked by the Gibeonites, their first reaction is to go punish them. But the leaders, you see, have given their word. In verse 18, But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. The honor of God is at stake, and so they stick to their agreements. And the honor of God is upheld. Let me fast forward with you. Hundreds of years later, King Saul is on the throne. And Saul decides that he's going to purge the kingdom of all foreign influences. And to do that, he kills some of the Gibeonites. And punishment for that happens during David's reign. 2 Samuel 21 says this. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. See, God does not go back on his word. Even hundreds of years later, the promise is in force, and David had to make it right. So while this was all happening, meanwhile, the coalition of the city-states comes together. Look at verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king what he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. Go down to verse 5. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of, the Jeru- of kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachesh, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops, and they took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. That coalition comes together. And the first thing that the coalition does is not go after Israel, but go after the traitors of Gibeon. And Joshua has made a treaty with them. And that treaty means that Joshua and his army now has to come to the rescue of the people who have tricked them into a moldy bread decision. And that's just what he's obligated to do. And so Joshua launches a surprise attack. And that surprise attack is so effective that the coalition armies actually flee. And while they are fleeing from the armies of Israel, God himself gets into the act. Verse 11 of chapter 10. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. More of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Joshua's coming to the aid of the city that has, be, uh, has, has uh, tricked him, sets off a pitched battle. And that pitched battle will determine who is in control of that center segment of the nation. And as the b- battle is unfolding, Joshua senses that the momentum is with his forces. God is fighting on his side. But he knows that the day is waning. Light is failing. 
and they need time to accomplish the victory. So he calls out to God for a miracle. Chapter 10, verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. There's never been a day like it. I love that phrase. Nothing like this has ever happened before. God elongated the day so Israel's uh, forces could be victorious. Now, we need to understand how to interpret this. This passage, this miracle, has been misused in history. In 1615, Galileo was popularizing Copernicus's theory that we now know to be true, that the earth actually revolves around the sun. Up until that point, the thinking was that the sun revolved around the earth. And when Galileo made that view known, It was this miracle that was used against his claim because they said, look, the Bible teaches us that the sun stood still, not that the earth stood still. So the sun clearly goes around the earth. Now, that's what I call Bible abuse because that's not what's being taught here. What we need to understand as we're reading this passage and many like that is we're reading what's called phenomenological language. That's a big word simply to mean this. It describes how the phenomenon would have looked to people who were watching. And it would have looked like the sun stood still. We still use phenomenological language when we talk about these same events. We talk about the sun rising and the sun setting. We know that the sun's not moving. It's the earth that's moving. But it looks to us in that way. So you can't make a case here that the earth is the center of the universe based on this passage. Neither can it be argued that the Bible is scientifically incorrect because it's not teaching science here. It's simply telling us what it looked like. And what it was and what it looked like is a miracle from God. There is no reason to doubt the fact that the God who spoke space and time into place could halt the progress of both, could lengthen a day for the advantage of his people. Why am I so quick to accept the miracle that we see here as a pure miracle? Because Christianity is a miracle-based faith. And when I say that Christianity is a miracle-based faith, I don't mean, hey, I got a good parking place right next to the entrance to the mall. It's a miracle. Or there was no traffic going into the Bay Area. It's a miracle. Although that would be a miracle. What I mean is God in his supernatural power invading and intervening in the forces of nature as they operate. God created those forces. He can do it. He can manipulate them. He can change them. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. The mind which asks for a non-miraculous faith is a mind relapsing from Christianity to mere religion. The center of our faith is a miracle. Christ was raised from the dead. The basis of our faith 
is that God is able to intervene. He made the earth. He made the stars. He made the space. He can do with them what he wishes. And so, instead of the children of Israel progressing across that blue line, battle after battle, city after city, one by one taking the land, because of the treaty that they had with Gibeon and the way they responded to keep their word, they were able to defeat a coalition of those armies all at once. In one fell swoop, the center section of the nation was theirs. I'm reminded of Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love, and have, love Him and have been called according to His purpose. All things. This started as a bad decision. This was a moldy bread choice. But God took that bad decision, and even though it was wrong, out of it, they were able to gain a great victory much quicker than they would have in other circumstances. So what are the lessons here? Lesson number one regarding Gibeon and their deception we need to be people who see the absolute wisdom of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Trust God. God worked this situation for good even though it started as a bad choice. But we don't have to make bad choices. We don't have to let disguise and flattery, which are often the tools of the enemy, lead us down the wrong path. Promised land living is living that's bathed in prayer. Take time to make pause to pray the way, may you, the way you make decisions. Because prayerlessness is a statement. And the statement is, I don't need God. Regarding the battle... We see here that God will fight for his people. The hailstones only hit the enemy. The fact that the sun stood still was a response to the prayers of his people. God is never outwitted. He's never outsmarted. His eyes are never clouded and his back is never turned. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. And he's always paying attention to you and the battles that you face. In the struggles that you face, you can call out to him just like Joshua did and he will have a will and he will have a direction. And when we say yes to his will, we find him to be trustworthy. You can depend on him. Even after they made the moldy bread choice, God still showed up. And he has not given up on you either. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you know us. Thank you that individually... You see us by name and you see everything we've ever done and you've heard everything we've ever said, but still you love us. It's shocking to know it, but we rejoice in its truth. Help us make the decisions that are wise. Help us to be a people led by prayer and the will of the Holy Spirit. We want to be yours. In your name we pray. Amen. The team is back with a closing song. Would you stand as we sing? Amen. We're going to Brother Patrick start this song out for us.
back tonight 6 30 reggie stone's going to lead us in an evening of worship and praise i know will lift your spirits and bless your soul so plan on coming back it's totally free maybe you're here and there's a need in your life an issue for prayer we always have prayer counselors by the organ next to the prayer table they will wait for you as you slip forward but first let's all pray together thank you lord jesus at the center of our faith is that we have a living savior The center of everything we do is a miracle, the resurrection. You are alive and you are listening. So we pray, Lord, that you watch over us in the week ahead. We pray that we're able to give you glory in all that we do and say, help us to live in such a way that we point people to Jesus. And Lord, show us the way. We love you. 
and we leave this place with joy filling our hearts and your praise on our lips. Thank you for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for coming.